Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, to Galatians chapter 6. The last time I preached a Lord's Supper sermon was seven months ago, back in March. The way in which things have worked out after we've been able to meet again, Pastor Hill has been preaching Lord's Supper sermons, and at that time I preached the first installment of what looks like is going to be three sermons that we've entitled The Cross, Our Glory, and these are taken from Galatians chapter 6. So I'd like to read from Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And here's the heart of our text. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now before we look again at this passage, let us pray for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for this wonderful text that shows the attitude of the Apostle Paul being fixed supremely upon his Savior and what Jesus did upon the cross. And we plead with you, Lord, that our affections and our thoughts would be lifted up this this morning, that you would be pleased to cause it to be worked deep into our heart, that all of our glory would be the cross of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And just as Paul boasted in the cross, we pray that we too would have confidence in and, and rejoice in and celebrate and speak about the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, O Lord, we do pray that the scenes of the cross would come to our minds once again as we consider this theme. And we pray that as we go forth from this place, just as we just sang, may it be so that all our glory is the cross. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In the wild days of the Old West, An itinerant preacher crossed paths one evening with a group of cowboys that were herding cattle northward. And these were hospitable cowboys. They were friendly. They invited this preacher, therefore, to eat with them, and he accepted their invitation. But they were kind of an uncouth group, and uh, as the preacher knew them, he knew them from stopping by uh, formerly in his travels. And because they were not very refined, of course, their knowledge about how to cook was about on the same level as their appreciation of opera, which is basically non-existent. And accordingly, the preacher, in anticipation of seeing these cowboys, he armed himself in advance with a bottle of hot pepper sauce. And when the steaks were being passed around the cooking fire, the preacher took the sauce from his saddlebag and He gingerly sprinkled some of it on his steak so as to awaken the flavor of the meat. And one of the cowboys, who had never seen this before, he stared at the preacher, wide-eyed with wonder, and he asked if he could try some of the sauce. So the preacher obligingly handed him the bottle of uh, hot peppers, and the cowboy proceeded to empty its entire contents on his own meat. And then, having taken a generous bite, of course, his mouth was on fire as never before. When at last the storm had passed sufficiently for him so that he could begin to breathe once again, he quickly quickly concluded that the preacher must really believe in future punishment because he carried a sample of it in his saddlebag wherever he went. Now one of the morals of this story is that more is often less. More of the preacher's pepper sauce only made the meal less edible. There are times when adding to something risks subtracting from the whole. And this is not only true in the kitchen, it also is true in other ways. 
If you were to paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa, you would be adding some more detail to that picture, but the addition would result in less of a painting. And if the New England Patriots dared to tromp onto the stage of the Boston Ballet for the performance of the Nutcracker Suite, it would add more power to the presentation as they stomped around, but it would really result in a less beautiful and appealing presentation. It would be dreadful. And in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of those that want to add to the cross of Christ. And the result is infinitely more dreadful. He is saying that adding to this cross, it results in less, not more. And making matters worse, in the churches in the province of Galatia, there were teachers who actually boasted in what they were adding to the cross. The problem was not simply the fact that they boasted. There's a kind of boasting that's one of mankind's most repugnant sins. All of us hate to be around a braggart that's always talking about himself. And braggarts are insufferable. But there is a kind of boasting in which we rejoice in something or some other person other than ourselves. A baseball fan, he finds delight in speaking of uh, his team, and they've just had five home runs in that game. Or a music lover, he finds delight in talking about his favorite composer. Now usually we boast in somebody or something because of something that that person has done for us. Our favorite slugger has just hit three home runs. Against overwhelming odds, a soldier risked his life and delivered his unit from annihilation. So this, this brings us to ask then, among all of God's works, which work is most worthy of praise? Well, in our text, the Apostle Paul gives a decisive answer. He says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so among all the accomplishments that, uh, that, that have, have been performed, and even among all the things that Jesus performed, what work is so perfect and so complete that adding to it makes it less, not more? It's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so perfect, it's so complete. If we try to add our accomplishments to it, the result is less. It destroys it. It's not more. And in fact, the result is even worse than having the New England Patriots stamp around, stomp around on the Boston ballet stage. In that case, the debacle just ruins a night of entertainment. But adding to the cross, it brings damnation. It, 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 if you add anything else to what Jesus did, it's a catastrophe with eternal consequences. It's either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. That's what's on the line. Now, in our first sermon on these verses, we sought to answer two questions. And these are in your outlines, and maybe you have them on your phones if you uh, picked up the, the outline. And because it's been several months since I preached the first sermon on this text, I want to summarize our answer to the first two questions that we went through on that occasion. And the first question that we asked is, what did Paul refuse to boast in? Notice again what he says in verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now in these words, Paul reiterates what prompted him to write to the Galatians. There were some Jewish Christian teachers that had done some follow-up work on Paul's evangelism. And they believed in the basic truths of the cross and of the empty tomb. But there was one thing that these teachers wanted to add to the gospel that Paul was preaching. And this was to make the Jewish rite of circumcision requisite. They insisted it that it was essential to salvation. They were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And since these Judaizers, as we often refer to them, since they believed that circumcision was necessary for salvation, 
Naturally, they wanted to circumcise as many people as, as possible. And so when they visited the Galatian churches, they pressured the Gentile Christians to be circumcised. And the problem was not so much, you see, in the circumcision itself. The real problem was, as Paul puts it here in verse 12, they would compel you to be circumcised. This was an absolute necessity, they were saying. They were demanding that they would be circumcised in order to be saved. And why were they doing this? Well, they thought they were upholding God's ancient ordinances, the ordinance of circumcision. Um, This was what, what they thought. But Paul could see what their real motives were. Notice, first of all, what he says at the end of verse 12. He, he said they did this only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And here the word cross in this place, it stands for the doctrine of salvation through the crucifixion of Christ as against justification by works of the law. And it was this message the message of the cross that was so offensive to the Jews. And it seemed to treat their religious right as just something worthless. If you don't have to be circumcised anymore, if you don't have to become a Jew and become special people of God like we are, then what is it it worth anyway? It destroyed their preeminence, you see. They thought they had a leg up on God, and this brings them back down to the horrible level of the Gentiles around them. And as the church spread throughout Asia Minor, persecution of the church by the Jews spread with it. And the easiest way to avoid this persecution was to become circumcised. And another reason that these Judaizers insisted on circumcision was this. They wanted to seem successful. At the beginning of verse 12, Paul says that they desired to make a good showing in the flesh. They were motivated not by concern for the spiritual well-being of these Christians, but they were motivated by making a good external impression. Apparently, they thought the more foreskins they collected, the more impressed people would be back in the home church of Jerusalem. You can almost imagine uh, sending back a missionary letter, you see, Mission to Galatia is, the, is at the top of the, of the ladder. And it, it, right at the top, the headline is 103 circumcisions. Wow! We were getting a lot of people circumcised. But it was all for a show. But Paul refused to boast in this external right. In other places, he mentioned several other externals that he refused to boast in or put his trust in, his national privileges, his good works, and his churchmanship. And in our day, just as well as in his day, people tend to rely upon externals. They tend to boast in these things. Well, how many came to church today? Or I went to church today. Or I got baptized. Or I I did this good deed. Or I, I was on such and such a committee. And I would plead with you to turn from anything like that you're putting your trust in and to trust only in the cross of Christ. This is what Paul is preaching in this place. Say with Paul, God forbid that I should boast in or that I should trust in anything besides the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings me to the second heading that we covered in our last sermon. Having asked, well, what did Paul refuse to boast in? We ask, what did Paul then boast in? Well, in verse 14, he tells that it is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to his countrymen, what Paul boasted in, it was a very strange thing. It was the cross. Now, Christians in our day have a hard time relating to what the scandal of what Paul is saying here. We go into church buildings and we see these gold-studded crucifixes and, or crosses And it seems like something that's noble. It seems like it's even beautiful. As Carl Henry observes, the transformation of the bloodstained cross of Calvary to the diamond-studded gold cross of a cathedral, it may well signify man's attempt to remove the offense of the cross. But to the first century Jews, and to the Romans even, it was the epitome of that which was degrading, disgusting, and despicable and detestable. In fact, they sometimes in polite society wouldn't even use the word cross. They would use 
a substitute expression like hang him on the cursed or the unlucky tree. So what a strange thing to, to boast in. The, the very thing that was thought most despicable, Paul boasts in. You would think this would be an embarrassment for the church. But instead of denying the cross, or instead of covering up the cross, Christians advertise the cross. And the very thing that most people consider too obscene to whisper about in polite company, Christians were broadcasting in the streets. Now what is the cross in which Paul glories? You notice in your outlines that we, in our last sermon, mentioned three things. In the first place, Paul speaks of it as the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in some places, he simply refers to our Savior as Christ. Some places as Jesus. Some places as Lord. But here he writes it all out. Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have what Spurgeon calls a sort of pomp of words. As if, in contrast to the shame of the cross... He shows that even though it's shameful to appearance, it is glorious. It is something almost pompous in its extravagant glory. It seems that he deliberately expresses himself this way to stress the dignity of the one that was subjected to the ignominious death of the cross. He is Christ the anointed. He is Jesus the Savior. He is the Lord, the supreme sovereign of all. In 19th century England, when they built a great, uh, when they built cathedrals and they had these really pompous services, and they would have a, in one of these cathedrals, a funeral for a nobleman that just died. The herald would stand at the head of the grave and he would proclaim the titles of the man that's being buried. Here lies the body of William, Duke of this, and Earl of that, and Count of the other, and Knight of this order, and, and on and on. And even so, with Deep solemnity, Paul proclaims the majesty and glory of this one who died. He is the Lord. He is Jesus. He is Christ. And also included in this expression is the fact of the cross, a second aspect. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he died really the death of a felon on a crude Roman cross. He was literally put to death there. He became accursed in the eyes of the Jew. Referring to Deuteronomy 21 in Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He actually died the cursed death of the cross. And also, thirdly, included in this expression is the doctrine of the cross. Paul gloried in this doctrine. And often when he refers to the cross, He's speaking of the doctrine of the Christ who has died for sinners on a Roman cross. And this is what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the preaching of the cross. Preaching the cross, it involves unfolding the significance of the cross. Unpacking the accomplishments of the cross. And so in a word, in this place, Paul is referring to the great biblical doctrine of the atonement. He is referring to the doctrine that Christ was made sin for us, even though he was not sin. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. He was offered up as a sacrificial lamb. All these doctrinal expressions are represented by the expression, the doctrine, or the message, or the preaching of the cross. This is the word of the cross that Paul loved to preach. This is what he heralded from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. This is the gospel that he came back again and again to, no matter what he's writing about as he writes his letters to the churches. There's not a question that arises that that doesn't prompt him to go back to the cross. He enlarges upon it constantly. It's the golden thread that runs through all of his doctrinal teaching and practical exhortations. So clearly, Paul thinks that from babes in Christ to the most advanced Christians, they can never hear too much about the cross. This was Paul's great boast. Well, this brings us now in the third place, and we will spend all of our time this morning on this third question. Why did Paul boast in the cross? Well, it wasn't merely that this was a good stump speech that worked well for him. 
whenever, you know, if you've seen any of these rallies that our president holds, obviously not right now, but often he's held them in the past. At some point in his speech, he always gets to reciting a litany of all the accomplishments that he has had as a president. These accomplishments, we might say, are his boast. That he glories in those things. And no matter what city he's in, no matter where it is, you can expect him to remind people of his successes. He loves to talk about those successes. And even so, Paul loved to extol the glories of the cross. This wasn't merely, though, because it worked as a good stump speech. It wasn't merely because it worked as a sentimental thing that people kind of would tear up when they would hear about it. And so it was kind of a poignant thing for him to bring into his message. He had solid reasons for doing this. He had survived for the whole range of subjects available. And he looked with an eagle eye and he knew exactly why he had chosen this theme. Paul was a master of the art of thinking. As a logical thinker, he was without peer in his age. He stands almost alone in the first century church as a mastermind. He is the great theologian of the early church. There were others that may have been more poetic, some may be more simple, but no one excelled Paul in argumentative powers. With firm decision, he sets aside everything else And he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a deliberate choice that he has made. And even Jesus Christ himself cannot be our glory apart from the cross. One of his sermons on the book of Galatians, John Calvin says, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cannot be our glory but only in respect that he was crucified for us. In Christ crucified, and in Christ crucified alone, does Paul boast. Now there are many other valuable things, many other wonderful things in the Bible even, but he as it were put them all for a moment on the shelf, and he brings out this one thing. And even so we join Isaac Watts, as we sing, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Now, there are many ministers in our day that do not glory in the cross, but rather forsake the cross. They prefer to fill their sermons with more positive ideas. You go to hear wonderful, encouraging, uplifting, warm, fuzzy types of things like God's wonderful plan for you or how to slay the giants in your life. Or or they constantly maybe, uh, they're talking always about the theme of social justice of one sort or another, talking about contemporary issues like intersectionality or racial injustice, and as as important as a theme that is, income equality, climate injustice, food insecurity, And all these things, obviously, these are concerns that that need to be thought about. But you can go to service after service in such places, and that's their sermons. It's not about Jesus. It's not about the cross of Christ. Or if the cross is mentioned, it's explained away as an example of self-sacrifice. They cannot endure the old biblical doctrine of a real substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And likewise, in Paul's day, there were preachers in Galatia. There were those that went about preaching the necessity, yes, of the the cross. But they would instantly get right away to to circumcision. And they would, the emphasis of the sermon would be, you've got to become a real, real Jew. Because all of them have got to become a a part of Israel if you want to be saved. This is what God says in his law, they would say. And there were others that sought to decorate it with their philosophical niceties. There were philosophers, you remember, that came to Corinth, and Paul spoke about them. And so in Paul's day, there were preachers in Galatia. They went about preaching the necessity of circumcision or making sure the church was circumcised. 
or they went around preaching philosophy, but to Paul it is the bare, naked cross, all stained with blood and despised by men. This was what he gloried in. Now why is it? Well, on the cross he saw many glorious realities that captured his heart. And I want to point out several of them to you. I, we're not going to get through everything in the list that is there in the notes that were, were uh, forwarded to you. But we'll get as far as we can. We're going to have another sermon on this theme. But the first thing I want to mention is that in the cross he saw a vindication of divine justice. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 3. In the cross, Paul saw a vindication of divine justice. Now, there is nowhere else where the justice of God is on display so clearly as in the death of Christ. There was never such a complete satisfaction of the justice of God as at the cross. Even hell doesn't satisfy that justice to the same extent, because sinners never get done paying for their sins. They keep on adding to them, for one thing, in hell. It's never satisfied fully even there. And the sins of a vast host that cannot be numbered, sins against an infinitely holy God, these, though, at the cross, these are all paid in full. The law of an infinitely righteous God, it has to be satisfied to the full. And that's what takes place at the cross. Here in Romans chapter 3, Notice what Paul says, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin." Paul makes it very plain. You can't get to heaven. You can't be accepted by God by trying to just do a lot of good things or by just obeying all the commandments. The commandment never was given for that reason. The commandment was given to show that you're guilty before a holy God. And then he says in verse 21, but now, notice that contrast, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, that is apart from keeping the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So he's saying God was righteous in forgiving the Old Testament saints. But then secondly, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, I don't have time to go through everything that's in that passage, but... Perhaps to give you a little glimpse of what this passage uh, says here, I could just lead into it just by a, a little vignette here of what took place many years ago here in our own country. There was a judge that was called upon to try a prisoner that had been his companion in his early days as a young man. And it was a crime for which the penalty was a, a, a fine. And it was a fine, either more or less heavy, as determined by the judge. And the judge did not diminish the fine in the least. The crime was a grievous crime. And so he fined the prisoner to the full, to the maximum extent of the law. And so some that knew his former relation to the offender, they thought he was really being severe. He was being rather unkind to mete out justice to such a full extent. But then on the other hand, others, they admired his impartiality that he would do this, give a heavy sentence even to his former friend. And then everybody in the room were surprised when they saw the judge then stepping down from the bench 
and paying the fine himself down to the last penny. He had both shown his respect for the law, you see, and then he had paid it himself. And that's what God has done through his dear son, the Lord Jesus. He hasn't remitted the punishment in the least. And instead, he himself has endured it. His own son, who was none other than God himself, he has paid the debt which was encouraged by our sins. And because it is a full satisfaction of the righteous requirements of God himself, and because it was fully worked out by God himself in the person of his son, Paul calls it the righteousness of God in these verses that I just read. It's not the righteousness of God and man. God does his part, man does his part. No, this is all of God. It's fully accomplished by God, the God-man. And this righteousness was worked out as a blood, it was worked out on a blood-spattered tree. He emphasizes this in verses 24 and 25. We've been justified how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That was on the cross. And at this time when he was on the cross, it was also a propitiation, an appeasement of God's wrath. That's what a propitiation is. And how does this take place? It's by his blood. And when did he bleed? He bled and died on the cross. And so you see, it was fully through the cross and through what Jesus accomplished there. This, as you see, what vindicated the divine justice of God. And I love to think about this aspect of the work of our Lord. This is the gateway from death row to the glorious liberty of the sons of God. It's the portal from hell to heaven. Some can't bear the thought that God would require a payment like this to be paid for by our Savior. They suppose this is kind of getting back to primitive tribalism, where you, gotta, you worship these angry gods and you've got to kill something to please this angry God and stop him from sending the tornadoes or whatever it is you're trying to stop. They suppose that this pictures God as an unrelenting, exacting, bloodthirsty God. But if there's no such thing as the absolute righteousness and justice of God, the very pillars of heaven and earth are shaken, and the foundations of justice begin to crumble. If sin is just a trifle that God can just say, okay, well, I'll forget about it, I'll just dismiss it. If he could just dismiss it with a wave of a hand, then virtue is worthless. Society itself can't stand, you see, if law, the law is not unenforced. We're seeing this on our streets right now these days. They're letting people out of jail. And they, they go out and they murder. They go out and commit rape and, and other crimes. The law is not being upheld. And so there's a consequence to not upholding justice. In such a society, the sanctions of the law begin to be empty threats. And as criminals go back out to steal and pillage and everything else, eventually the cry was raised in the cities of our land to uphold once again the standards of the law. Charles Spurgeon, he says, For my own part, I value a just salvation. An unjust salvation would never have satisfied the apprehensions and demands of my conscience. No! Let God be just if the heavens fall. Let God carry out the sentence of the law or the universe will suspect that it was not righteous. And when such suspicion rules in the general mind, all respect for God will be gone. Dear ones, I rejoice in the fact that my salvation is in full accord with the absolute righteousness and justice of God. My Savior is both God and man. Man to stand in my place. God to satisfy the into infinite requirements of his law. Here is my security. It's that the one that took my place upon the cross, this one bore in my behalf the full penalty that I would have had to pay. At the cross, there was a vindication of the justice of God that is not inferior in the least to the punishment of hell. And so as we gather around the table this, this today, 
as you partake of the bread, as you drink the cup, the cup reminding you of the shed blood of Jesus, remember that it reminds you of the vindication of God's justice. But there was also a second thing that Paul saw when he thought about the cross. He saw in it a display of God's love. Where can I see the grandest display of God's love? Shall I look at the glorious sun shining down daily on unthankful and rebellious sinners? That is love, yes. But is that, is that the grandest display of love? Shall I smell the refreshing showers and see the refreshing showers as they come to, to water a parched land? Shall I look at the ingathering of the abundant harvests year after year? No, my friend. No. The grand display of God's love is in the cross. And here I want you to notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if, we, if you saw today a man that you know rushing out onto the tracks of an oncoming train to push his friend to safety and thereby lose his life, you would say, other people seeing it would say, such love for a friend is amazing. But on the cross, our Savior, he didn't suffer just a quick death, as it would be with an ongoing train that would just smash him in a second. He suffered a slow, excruciating physical death and an even more excruciating spiritual torment. And he suffered this way not just for friends, but for enemies. And furthermore, in addition to demonstrating the love of the one who died on our behalf, dying even for the, us enemies, this cross demonstrates the love of one who gave. It's not only the love of the Son, but it's also the love of the Father who gave his only begotten Son up to the horrors of Golgotha. In Romans 8 and verse 32, Paul speaks of God as the one who did not spare his own Son. He didn't spare him. He didn't get a little bit lighter on him, like somebody that, that needs to, to administer some corporal punishment Lightening up and sparing, you see. He didn't spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. And that word delivered is a kind of a courtroom type term, a, a judicial term of being delivered up to punishment. When Judas betrayed his master with a kiss, and when the rough soldiers bound Jesus and led him off to be tried by his enemies, God himself was delivering up his son. He was handing him over. Can you imagine doing that to your son, the son that you love? Take him out to some place where he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be put in shackles. He delivered him up. When Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers so that he might be scourged and whipped within a hair's breadth of losing his life, whipped until he's a bloody mass. Can you imagine doing that to your son? To give him up for that. And when Pilate hands Jesus over then to be crucified, and when the sentence is being carried out, the father, let's remember, he was delivering his dear son up to the hatred and cruelty of those who thirsted for his death. Could you do that to a son that has never brought you an ounce of grief throughout your whole life? Could you refuse to give to your dear son even the least token of, of love and affection in the hour of his suffering? Could you bear to hear that cry of dereliction without giving him at least one loving look? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out. Could you bear to plunge him into the despair of darkness? And could you do all that 
to save somebody who for years who has shown you nothing but rejection and hatred and animosity. Dear ones, what love is like this? What can compare to the love of the Father giving his Son up to the excruciations and the horrors of Calvary? And so as you eat the bread, as you drink the cup this afternoon, do this in remembrance of that love as well as in remembrance of your Savior's dying love. It was not only the love of Jesus, but the love of the Father that gave him up for you. And as you sing, as you pray, lift high in your hearts the love of the Father and the love of the Son for you. Let the wonder of this kind of love flood your soul with amazement. Sing of this love. Talk of this love. Glory in this love. Boast in this love. Go out and tell the world of this love. In the cross, Paul saw a display of God's love. Thirdly, in the cross, he also saw the basis of our justification. Our justification is our being pronounced righteousness by, righteous by God. It's being forgiven of all of our sins and being then credited with Christ's righteousness. Now the false teachers in the province of Galatia, they were saying that a person has to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. But in Galatians 2 and verse 16, Paul categorically declares that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What these Jews were doing was a classic case of subtracting by adding. By adding their own works to what Jesus did, they were subtracting. And those who rest by faith on the finished work of Christ on the cross, these ones are justified. But those you see that try to add to the work of Jesus, they add their works, their prayers, their rosary beads, whatever it might be. Instead of adding to their justification, they're subtracting from it. They're ruining the perfect work of Jesus for their justification. In an article on this subject, historian Alan Gelzo, he says this. I once had a science teacher, Mr. Gianfrano. He was memorable for his colorful teaching style and his way of illustrating a scientific point. One day to illustrate the scientific measurement of work and how much it differed from the common sense notion of work, and this was work in what he called foot-pounds, Mr. C stood, uh, stood one member of the class up at the wall and he told it to push against the wall with all of his strength. And to another he gave a tennis ball and he told him to toss it up gently up and down and catch it again. And then he asked, who is performing work according to the scientific definition? And the answer, the one that's really performing the work is the one that's throwing the tennis ball up. Now, why is it so? Despite all the sweat and exercise of the other guy pushing on the wall, the wall hadn't moved one centimeter. Therefore, there were no feet moved, you see. The scientific definition of work being accomplished, something being pushed, you see, hadn't been accomplished no matter how hard he pushed. But by way of contrast, the one with the tennis ball, he had moved his air-filled ball very nicely, thank you, and he had something that fit the measurement, the scientific measurement and demonstration of work. And so Paul wants these Galatians to understand that all the pushing that they wanted to do against the wall of the Old Testament law, all of their pushing, all their good deeds will, will amount, if you add it all up, to a big fat goose, goose egg. It is zero in the eyes of God. Nothing's really been accomplished. It looks really strenuous. It looks even impressive. The guy's bulging, you see, his forehead and, and so forth. But it doesn't actually, you see, move you one inch toward the salvation that you're seeking to get from God. The favor of God only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus who died for sinners. 
Now, the message of the cross, it shows us how far up the creek we are without a paddle. And to that message, you can make one of two responses. You can either get angry with God, and you can tell him that you're really better than he thinks you are, or you can tell God that he's right and you're wrong. And you can plead for forgiveness and acceptance based on the finished work of his son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross. Which is, which, what are you going to do? All of us have inflated views of ourselves. All of us, says John Stott, especially in self-righteousness, we have these inflated views until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Any attempt to make your relationship with God into a 50-50 deal where God does his part, you do your part, this is a fool's errand. It's like trying to add to the factor of, of the equation E equals mc squared. If you can't improve upon Einstein's formula, don't imagine you can improve upon God's provision of the cross. Notice what Paul says in chapter 5 of verse Romans. Of Romans. He says, uh, chapter 5 and verse 9, much more than he says, having now been justified by his blood, that is through the cross, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then back up again to chapter 3. Again, reading from those verses we read earlier, backing up to verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. How? Through all really working hard for it. No. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he speaks about how he forgave in the past and then how he forgives now based upon that finished work of the Lord Jesus. Paul believed that the Lord Jesus on the cross, he finished transgression. He made an end of sin. He brought in everlasting righteousness as was prophesied in Daniel. And he who believes in Jesus, therefore, is justified from all those things for, for which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And since God laid our sins on Jesus, he's not going to lay upon any believing sinner that trusts in Jesus any of those crimes or any of that guilt. The Lord's never going to punish twice for any crime. He's just. And if he accepts the payment my Savior paid upon the cross, if he accepts my substitute, how can he then bring me to his bar and punish me all over again for that same transgression? Has he not promised that for those who cast themselves upon Christ through faith, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea? Dear people, this is something to glory in. This is something amazing. This is something to be celebrated. And those of you that know the sin-removing power of the cross, those of you that know that you are justified based upon the payment that Christ made, those of you that know this, you have reason to boast in that cross. But now in the fourth place, in the cross, Paul also saw a marvel of divine wisdom. I see we're getting on in our time here a little bit. I'm going to save this point for next time when we meditate upon this theme. But again and again, he speaks of the cross as being the very wisdom of God. And that wisdom being displayed in such a way that it is reason for boasting, for glorying. I want to come to the fifth, and for our purposes this morning, it's going to be our final observation. In the cross, Paul also saw the door of our hope. G. Campbell Morgan, he once said this, nobody who has truly seen the cross of Christ can ever speak of hopeless cases. There's hope for the worst sinners in the cross. It's the door of hope for the vilest of the vile. Now the world was a very filthy place back in Paul's day. And I'm not talking about material filth. I'm talking about spiritual filthiness. 
Roman civilization was exceedingly brutal and debased. And the masses were sunken in vices we dare not describe. But what does Paul say? Here I want to especially read what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now what kind of a list is he giving here? Is he talking about, you know, petty shoplifting? Is he talking about little disrespect? Is that what he's, he's talking about really gross sin. Gross forms of wickedness. He's listing that kind of a list. And people that live in that kind of sin, he says, don't you claim that you have been, you've been saved? And yet what does he say in verse 11? And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And how were these Corinthians washed from these filthy sins? There was only one way for them to be washed. They knew what Paul had been preaching to them. It was his one great theme. They were washed by the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross. Paul had told them, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul felt he could go and preach in the very darkest place. And even in those dark places where there are filthy sins, such as Corinth, which was known for its filthiness, he knew he could preach there and that message, it would save some of these filthy sinners. Such were some of you, he says. And even so, now, the message of the cross, it has power to lift up the fallen. It has power to deliver the sparing, despairing, no matter how wicked they are. What other message has this kind of power to change people? Do you know of any kind of philosophy that you could learn at the university and then use that philosophy to go down into some wicked part of the city and, you know, where the, where the prostitutes are or where the drug dealers are or whatever it is that's going on now in those neighborhoods. And you're going to tell them this philosophy and all of a sudden they're going to say, wow, I think I'm going to change. I'm going to, do, I'm going to be different from here on on. And then, lo and behold, they're totally changed. Does that ever happen? No. But you take this wonderful message of the cross of the Lord Jesus and preach them to harlots, preach it to the filthiest and the most vile sinners that are, that are here in, in the capital district. And that message, although some people were rejected, it is the power of God unto salvation. And likewise, you can go to, to filthy educated sinners Sinners that are at the higher levels of society, and they've got all their filth, you see, that they, they keep hidden, you see, from, from the gazes of others. And you go to try to win them with, with a philosophy, what are you going to do? But even to them, you see, if your message is drawn from the scenes of Calvary, the love of God poured out there for, will, for filthy sinners, this will, will succeed. This is the message that's the hammer that will break the rock. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here this morning. You're deeply distressed over sins that you were just happy that nobody in this whole room knows that you are guilty of those sins. You have things that you've done that when you're reminded of them, you just feel awful about it. You wish that somehow you could erase that having happened in the past. Or maybe I'm talking to somebody. You were not just thinking about something you did five years ago, but something you're in bondage to right now. A sin that's got you in its hold. A sin that grips you and masters you. A sin that you see you have no success against whatsoever. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody like that. You are enslaved to sin. You were guilty of sin. Let me draw your attention to an old story. It's a story written hundreds of years ago. Shoulders hunched. The man plods through life straining with every step to carry a great burden on his back. It's been his night and day companion. 
Not once has he known relief from the merciless weight of this huge burden. The man's name is Christian. He's the central character in John Bunyan's classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in one moving scene from the book, Christian finds the path to salvation. He staggers up a hill. He reaches the peak of that hill. He sees a wooden cross and just below it an empty sepulcher. And as he gets near the cross, a miracle happens. The straps binding the massive weight to his shoulders loosen. The load tumbles into a, the sepulcher that's gaping with, open, with its wide open mouth. And never to be seen again. The burden's gone. A delicious feeling of lightness now, you see, lifts his spirits. Joyous tears of relief stream down his face. Three shining ones approach him. The first one announces, your sins are forgiven you. The second strips away his rags and dresses him in splendid clothes. And the third hands him a sealed scroll, which he is to present upon entrance to the celestial city. And overwhelmed by his freedom and overwhelmed by his deliverance, he sings, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the regate that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must there be the beginning of my bliss? Must there here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from my back? Must here the strings that bound me to, to the crack? Bless cross, bless sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame there for me. Well, in this brief scene, John Bunyan, in picture form, describes the message that we need as pilgrims through this world, laboring under the crushing burden of sin. Maybe some of you are laboring under that crushing burden. And when we stumble to the cross, it is only in that one place that there is hope again. There is hope for the vilest of vile. Hope for sinners that are filthy sinners. Sinners maybe that are proud sinners. Sinners that are convicted that maybe they're not those filthy kind. But they insult the, the cross of Christ because of all their self-righteousness. Maybe I'm talking to somebody self-righteous. It is only there, my dear friend, that you have a door of hope. And it is in this door of hope that all of us can boast as true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was this good news of a crucified Savior. This is what Paul boasted in. God forbid, he said, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the good news of that cross, he has discovered a vindication of divine justice, a display of divine love, the basis of our justification, a marvel of divine wisdom, and a door of hope. And so as Isaac Watts penned his great immortal hymn, one of the greatest hymns I believe ever written. In the second stanza, he says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? This is our glory. This is our boast. I hope it will be yours. hope it will be all of ours to the end of our days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you granted unto us this grand, this glorious message of a crucified Savior. We plead with you, Lord, that with Paul, that we would glory in this message, in this doctrine, and in this reality of a Savior who suffered for us upon the cross. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not subtract by adding. We pray that our faith would be solely in that cross and that alone. We pray for sinners sitting here even today that this would be a door of hope to them. This would be, as it were, the very gates of heaven, the place where their burden of sin rolls off their back. 
May for all of us this be the theme of our song. May this be that which we glory in, that which we rejoice in to the end of our days. We pray these things in the precious name of